This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. I want to pray specifically today for, for workers uh, in Israel and Gaza in that area. It's been all, all over the news. We've heard testimony from Jenny. We've we, we've seen what's going on, and it's easy. It's easy to get to really quickly move emotionally or mentally or even spiritually to a, a deeper end. But like we also can just pray for those that carry the Spirit, the Spirit of God there. Because believe it or not, there are, there are unbelievers, people separate from the family of God that are residences of lots of different countries in that area. <laughs> that have lots of different histories. And we should pray for those that work and carry the good news of Jesus uh, in that place. I think of Newport, Kentucky. I learned this week, some of you guys are, are NKY, best KY people in the room. And uh, I don't know that I'm that. I'm more like central KY, best KY, little small town KY, best KY. But, but, but for those of you that are NKYers in the room, uh, Newport, Kentucky is a town of about 17,000 people. It's Located right across the river from Cincinnati, lots of development, maybe most notable, an aquarium uh, that some of you guys have maybe gone to, or some really cool architecture. Uh, 17,000 people live in Newport, Kentucky, and in Newport, Kentucky, there is zero, zero churches of our denomination, zero. It's not something you think you'd wander upon. There's 105 Baptist churches in Lexington and surrounding counties, and there's zero in Newport, Kentucky. And that was put on my radar this week, and I was like, man, how? How? Now, it doesn't mean there's not kingdom work. It doesn't mean there's not workers there, other fellowships, other denominations of the congregation. And we cheer them on. It's not our, us of the highway, okay? But it just like put that on my radar of places that, that people need uh, a greater and more intentional work to be done, even in our backyard. And so just on my heart this week is praying for the workers in Newport, Kentucky. And so I, I, I don't want to make, you don't have to pray for one of these two. This is just kind of what's on my heart. But I just want to pause for a second as we approach 938. And I want you to, to let your heart go to an area or to a place. Maybe it might even be your neighborhood. If it's your neighborhood, then the worker you pray for might even be you as your gospel worker there. And just let your mind and heart go to a place to pray for workers. So let's, uh, let's just enter just kind of that moment of pause and moment of prayer. Um, Lord, we do. We pause and we just pray as we, as we see your word, Matthew 938. Um, pray for workers and the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers and the workers are few. Therefore, pray for, for you to send out more workers. And Lord, we just pause and we offer our prayers for places and geographies and you know, different frameworks and different streets and cities and towns and countries. We just pause and lift those to you. And so let's just collectively in our hearts and our minds lift an area that we're praying for workers to the Lord. Lord, we know that you hear our prayers. We know that you will continue to hear our prayers, even as we might put this into practice of putting this on our radar even daily uh, to pray for workers. Um, Lord, we pray for workers of, of young men and young women in their public schools that will be going to school tomorrow. We pray for workers in the city of Lexington, uh, different campus you know, engagements from, from clubs to classes to athletics. We pray for 
workers in, in places like Newport, Kentucky. We pray, pray for workers in places like Israel and Gaza in the midst of all the conflict that's going on. We pray for those that carry your good news um, that they might see a harvest in their midst. And Lord, we trust you and, uh, to be faithful, uh, to bring in more and more uh, into your fold, into your family. And so Lord, we just ask these things today in your holy name. Amen. All right, now we're going to get into 1 Peter 18, set 2, 18 through 21. And Jenny was, was grateful, or I'm grateful that she read that for, for us today. She was gracious to read that for us today. And um, we're going to look here again. I'm just going to reread it quickly. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? For if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Sometimes we get to verses like this, and, and it's funny, I was, I was kidding Butch. I was like, awesome, you gave me the verse about you know, servanthood and slavery. Um, thanks for that. We get to verses like this, and we wish that Peter or in other places, Paul in the New Testament would formally condemn slavery. It's like, we're rooting for it. Like, well, you know, our world kind of reverberates with that today, and we kind of want to be able to tag a Bible verse to all of our posts on social media, formally condemning slavery. And it's like, this would have been a great spot to do that, Peter or Paul. Why, why didn't you write that in here? Um, in fact, not only does it feel like that's missing from this passage, but people, other people throughout history have actually twisted verses like this to actually condone unjust, authoritative structures and relationships of enslaving others. I do want to give you heart, though, that there are multiple places where the Bible does, in fact, condemn slavery. In the Old Testament, it forbids the practice of acquiring or selling humans, and it's punishable by death. In the New Testament, it's talked at length about how the hierarchical relationships that exist in society are leveled at the cross. Peter or Paul actually says there is no slave or free anymore. There is no Jew or Greek, but all are equal in Christ. In fact, Paul's exhortation in Corinthians to greet one another with a holy kiss. Have you heard that? Maybe we should do that today? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, to greet one another with a holy kiss. The whole method behind that, or the whole purpose behind that, is it levels the dynamics because a master and a slave would never kiss each other. They would never be so intimate with each other to share that kind of a welcome. And so his encouragement to do that is actually um, him adding some practical, like tangible, uh, uh, you know, practice to reminding them that all are equal in Christ. In this context, specifically Roman slavery, it wasn't as much about one ethnicity um, empowering or powering up its, itself over another ethnicity it was more, Roman slavery primarily happened because of occupation of an area. So the Roman, you know, empire would come in, it would occupy an area, would enslave the people of that area, especially if they didn't, you know, meet some of the, some of the kind of integrative requirements to now be Roman, Roman citizens or Roman occupied. So, so Roman slavery primarily happened out of occupation, occupation of the area or because of debt or because of debt, people would enlist themselves into slavery um, as a way to serve off or to work off their debt. The greater context here is not a discourse on the heinous or wicked act of slavery. And, and even though that's needed, even though we, we should always be, be championing freedom, uh, we, should be, we should be marching and, and, and rioting against 
injustices, especially especially those that are motivated by um, you know what we would consider uh, you know inequity or inequity among people groups. Um, based on the color of their skin, we should always rail against that. But even though the greater context here is not a discourse on the heinous act of slavery, and maybe that's the reason Paul doesn't, or Peter doesn't address the unethical system itself, the, 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 the greater context here is that this is a conversation about endurance. About endurance. And this is where we should lean in. So we want to notice some things today. One, it says in chapter 2, verse 18, we're start, starting right out of the gate in our, in our selection today, it says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Uh, some of your translations might read with all fear. It's, it's, the, same, it's the word phobos uh, for fear, phobia, with all respect, with all fear. And then if you keep reading, it can be kind of confusing because it says not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, at first glance, you might feel like the scriptures are telling you to respect the good servant, the good masters and the bad masters with all fear and respect given to those. Uh, but, but the reality is, is what, what Peter's saying here is, servants, you're to be subject to both the good and the bad masters with all fear of respect to something greater, to something else. And, and this, in, in verse 18, ties into this exact same phrase from, the, from earlier that, that we read in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. It says, and if you call on him, Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with all fear or with all respect. These are the exact same phrases that, that Peter uses. He uses it in verse, in verse 17 of chapter 1, and he uses it in verse 18 of chapter 2. And his point is, is that we actually are going to exist in a relationship, even with even relationships of injustice, with actually our guiding force, our, our, the one that we are fearful and respecting in the manner and the way we live is not human beings, but is the Lord, the one that we get the, op- the privilege to call Father. That's who we fear and respect. It applies to God, that we conduct ourselves with fear. And then it says this, it says, that for this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When mindful, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It means it's a favorable thing. It means it shows off grace that we understand. When we're what? When we're mindful of God, when we're aware, when we understand, we're mindful of God. I, I don't know what, your, what translation you read, I'm reading from the ESV today. Um, the word mindful there is, is, is really it's helpful. It's helpful for the, for the verses. It's helpful for, for the application that we should be people that are mindful of God in, in the way that we endure. But the word used there for mindful or mindfulness is actually the same word that's translated probably three dozen times in the New Testament as the word conscience. As the word conscience. I want to show you some places that this word is used in a different context. In, in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, it says this, that they show that they, the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience or their mindfulness also bears witness. In Romans 13, 5, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath. This is talking about being in subject to, to the Lord. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of mindfulness or conscience. This is the same word. For our boast is this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12, verse 12. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, or our mindfulness, that we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so 
toward you. Peter, Peter uses this word that is many, most times translated as conscious right here, that we are mindful, that it's this awareness in, in not just our, our mental capacities, but an awareness in the depth of our soul of who God is. And when we endure mindful or God, of God or with an awareness in our conscience of God, then, then the way we endure becomes a gracious thing. When we're operating out of the peace of our own understanding of the gospel of Jesus, we can endure sorrows even if suffering unjustly. Now, I'm warning you. I started off with Chick-fil-A because I wanted to have a laugh and be a little lighter start. I'm warning you this is about to get dicey. We're about to unpack some things that's either going to really free you or really frustrate you. And I'm, my inbox is open for either, okay? Um, I want to be clear here. We live in a broken world, a harshly broken world. Not one single person in here is immune to this world's depraved brokenness. We see it on display in the Middle East, like the geopolitical conflict, Gaza, Israel, Palestine. We see it in racism and history of wicked oppression um, toward an entire race, as we mentioned at the beginning of our talk today. We see it in the destruction brought on relationships by anger and malice and unfaithfulness and jealousy and contempt and greed and pride. We see it in the realities of abortion. We see it in the realities of orphan children. We see it in broken marriages. We see it in harmful choices. We see it in drug abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, alcohol abuse, verbal, emotional, mental, and physical abuse. We see it in violence towards other people. We see it in cancer and other diseases. We see it in divorce. We see brokenness and are affected by brokenness literally everywhere. And I want to say this. I'm sorry that you've had to experience it. I don't know if anybody's ever just told you I'm sorry that you've had to experience it, but I'm sorry that you've had to. Really, truly, I am sorry that you've had to experience the brokenness you've experienced. I always think of that moment. This is not a this is not a uh, necessarily a recommendation for the film, but there's a moment in a, in a movie called Goodwill Hunting where where the counselor Robin Williams hugs Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon, and he just says, "It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault." And he just keeps kind of railing against it. And finally, there's this breakthrough where he just needs to to hear someone say, like, basically, "I'm sorry." I'm sorry that you've been hurt, and I'm sorry if you are hurting. Now, the truth is, many of us who have been hurt, we don't, we don't look at it in past tense. I'm sorry you've had to experience brokenness that was never the plan. It was never the plan for you to attend a tragically early funeral. It was never the plan um, for, for the disease or the cancer. It was never the plan for someone that had committed their life to you to change their mind. It was never the plan that someone you trusted hurt you or is hurting you, it was never the plan. It was never the plan. And I'm sorry if we're hurt by those things. Whether we are hurt by the loss of someone or someone's choices or someone's destructive behavior or words from someone you trusted or acts from someone you trusted, I'm sorry. But many of us that have been hurt still are hurting. And we wake up tomorrow with a view that we'll probably be hurting tomorrow too. And I'm sorry. And we are to absolutely lament that pain and sorrow and injustice and hurt. And the reason I'm going this route today is that, that this passage is about the context of endurance. Most of us don't find ourselves, yeah, maybe we could do like a, like a talk on financial peace and talk about deadness financially or something like that. But this context of this verse, we're not in, we're not in uh, servant and master relationships much, but we are in relationships or we are in dynamics that we have to uh, avoid, you know, endure in spite of suffering. And we're to lament the pain and sorrow and injustice and hurt that we face. We're commanded to by the scriptures. But we're also to endure. 
And this selection of scripture teaches us how. And it says the the secret sauce to endurance is to be mindful of God. We need to let our fear of the Lord lead in our relationships, even relationships of unjust authority, that we are to be mindful of God. So what on earth does that mean? What does that mean to be mindful of God in the face of suffering? Um, Here's where it gets dicey. Here's where you're going to take a step of freedom today or I'm going to get the frustrated email. And I'm joking about that, but seriously, you're welcome. You're welcome to say, I think you missed on this. Um, Mindfulness of God starts with us recognizing that because God, in his great mercy and grace for us, found and forgave and redeemed even me and even you, the vilest of sinners, that because he's done that, we can endure Now, if you think someone in the room is more of a vile sinner than you are, then we need to stop the talk right there. We need to stop it right there. And we need to ask the question, are you aware of your own sin? Now, some of you in the room are saying, hold on, Andrew. I thought you were talking about the people that have hurt me. And now you're yanking the rug out from under me and saying, I'm the problem. Okay, no, no, no. We're going to get back to the hurt you've experienced. But first, we must deal with the hurt you've caused we got to deal with that one first, and the hurt I've caused. And here's the hurt both of us have caused. We murdered God. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but we murdered him. You did, I did, we did. We are totally guilty of murdering Jesus. And I know that sounds harsh. I know it sounds harsh. But it was our sin that created the need for the cross. We amassed a debt we could not repay. I did and you did. We all contributed to it. And this is the gospel of Jesus We were more than bankrupt. We were more than just upside down. We were dead men and women walking. And that's how the Bible refers to us, as people dead in their trespasses and sins, as enemies of God. Jesus even said that those who were not born again, which at one time was all of us, that we were already condemned. He didn't come to the world to condemn us because we were already condemned. That's John chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. We were already condemned. We amassed an unpayable Debt. And some of us are still upside down in it. And I want to talk to you today if that's you, because you might think that coming to church or getting a slightly better rhythm or getting a slightly better ritual or routine or choosing to sin a little less or singing the songs that are on the screen or trying to be a good person means that you owe less of the debt. And I'm telling you, you're wrong. Because your debt is not repayable by you, and it's not repayable by your all-of-a-sudden good choices. Heaven is not for good people or people that figured it out and started to live better. Heaven is for forgiven people that have been made righteous by the grace of Jesus for those that have accepted him. That's it. And if that's not your testimony, if you're still thinking you're improving upon what's been made, what's, what's, what's I've done wrong, you're improving upon it, th- then you need to be forgiven and free. And how are we forgiven and made righteous? We're we're forgiven and made righteous by the cross of Jesus, that he went to the cross to pay the debt that we had accrued, which is why I say that we have to start with us. Our mindfulness of God has to start with us. So track with me here. We were the ultimate wrongers or wrongdoers of a holy God. We are the ultimate abusers, the ultimate destroyers, and the ultimate, essentially, murderers. And God, rich in mercy and grace, and steadfast love, founded in his heart, to save even us, to redeem us, to restore us, to ransom us and rescue us, to have compassion on us. I always think of, of it's mentioned, I mentioned 938, Matthew 938 earlier. I always think of that selection of scripture because Jesus, it says in there in Matthew 9, it says that he looks upon the crowds, the crowds that were, were, were ultimately the cause of his death. It says that instead of being frustrated by them, he has 
compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We should always be mindful of that. He, he did that. He, he, he had compassion to redeem and rescue and, and ransom and restore and save even us. He moved us from as far away as we possibly could be from God to as close as we could possibly be. We can't even improve upon it through one act of the cross and through our confession of our need for it and repentance, trust, and pay his debt. And if you have trusted Christ, if you trust Christ today, then you've been redeemed more than I can even articulate. You have been, we have an incredibly, undescribably gracious God, and Peter says that we should be mindful of him, and we should be mindful of what he's done. And if we are, if we are, here's the risky part, if we are, then the brokenness we have had happen to us, the brokenness we have unjustly and unfairly and tragically experienced, it stings less. It stings less. Now, I'm not saying that makes it okay. This is the part that can cause some frustration. Hear me. I am not saying for one second that when you become mindful of God, it makes what you experienced okay or lessens its depravity. It doesn't. I'm saying that if we are mindful of how God has redeemed us, that we are invited to endure differently. That we no longer feel owed as we once did because what God has done in us is impossible to improve upon. Did you hear me say that? We don't feel as owed because what God has done in us and for us is impossible to improve upon. There are people that if anyone saw your story would say they owe you something. And doesn't our language even suggest that? Don't we teach our kids that? You blank someone an apology, what do we say? Oh, you owe them an apology. We, we use debt and debtor language even in the way that we talk about um, cultural manners. And that's okay, I'm not railing against that. I just want us to zoom out and understand there, there, when, we, when we mention that someone owes me an apology or I owe one some apology, what I'm really saying is I'm acknowledging a relational debit in the account and they are owed a credit to get us back to even. That's how it works, to repair the brokenness. But we can be mindful of God and we can realize that what he's done for us actually leaves us wanting nothing. In Psalm 34, we preached on this selection of scripture a couple years ago in the summer, maybe even last year. Sometimes those run together, but we get, came across the verse that says, even young lions. So you got to think of it this way. Like, like let's, let's put on our, our Lion King hat here. Like, even prime Simba, right? Like, most, most agile, strongest, fiercest, um, you know, athletic, able, capable lions. Even they have nights that their tummy rumbles, that they couldn't catch anything, right? That they couldn't find the prey, that that it was just out of reach or just out of grasp. Even, the, even the, the, the prime version of the king of the jungle has some nights with a hungry, rumbly belly. Even young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who fear the Lord, what's it, what, does anybody know the rest? Lack. No good thing. We can't be improved upon. And so even the debt that I'm owed from somebody that wronged me actually doesn't improve upon what God made perfectly complete in the grace of of Jesus. We lack nothing. That apology you absolutely deserve that should be given to you, the cost that you've pers persevered that should be credited to you, it can feel like lack. It can feel like that lacks. And you can even tell yourself, if this just came my way, if the person that did the wrong just acknowledged it, if the, if the person that, that you know hurt me just owned it, if the thing that I endured, if it was just credit to me, it can feel like lack and it can keep us from seeing hurt as past tense to seeing it as present and future. 
The difference between a wound and a scar is not the injury. The difference between a wound and a scar is if you touch a wound, it still hurts. Now, scar can, can, they don't hurt anymore. They might look unpleasant. They might even be deformative. They might be reminders of incredibly dark brokenness. And a scar doesn't make what's happened okay for you to have received it. But when you touch it, it doesn't hurt. But when you touch a wound, when you touch a wound, it does. And that's why this is risky. And that's why I think Peter offers it to us in this manner. If we're to be mindful of God, even in our most unjust alignments, if we are mindful, we can endure in a way that's worthy. And what he says is a gracious thing that shows off grace in the sight of God, that you become a beacon of grace by how you endure the suffering that you face, grace that, that you understand and apply, grace that you're strengthened in. I love that in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, it says that we stand strengthened, strong in the Lord and Christ. We need to be strengthened by, by grace, empowered by it. And it's also, it's a gracious thing, the way that we endure, the way we offer grace to others. If you're truly mindful of the gospel and truly mindful of God, what can improve upon what God has made perfectly complete, lacking nothing? So I get back to this. You might walk in freedom today. Or you might be very frustrated. And some of you are thinking, I don't want to hear this today. He doesn't, know, he doesn't know my story. And you know what? I don't. I don't know it. And honestly, I struggled to endure my own story. That's my honest confession. I struggle enduring in my own story. And only by the grace of God can I even say that I've endured to October 22nd, 2023, only by the grace of God. There are people in this room with way harder journeys than me. And it was a day I was, I was driving actually with Trey. We were, we were going to Georgetown to do something. Uh, we were going to put together a video for, for a little conference workshop thing. And, and my radiator blew up in my car, my 2013 Chevy Malibu. My radiator blew up in it. And uh, if you've ever had a radiator go, go bad, uh, it makes driving really interesting because you can drive about 500 feet and then you have to stop and your car has to, you know, cool down and then you can drive about 500 more feet. And so the mechanic that I go to is at Nicholsville. So from like I-75 to Nicholsville, it, it literally took me like four and a half hours to drive in, 50, in 500 foot increments from Georgetown basically back to Nicholsville, or I could have just paid for a tow truck, but you know frugal. So I did not. And, uh, and I remember being so frustrated and like wondering where's this money going to come from and all these different things. And, and kind of my route had me drive past, uh, had me drive past Chandler Medical Center, UK Hospital, Chandler's main campus there. As I drove by, the Lord said, look to your left, because there's thousands of people in that that wish the worst news they got today was a blown radiator. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, and I need to be mindful of things bigger than myself. There are people with harder stories than, like, in the realm of, of everything, blown radio are not that big of a deal. There's people that have suffered a lot more. And I know I would struggle in your story. And that's why this is important for us. That all of us don't become mindful of our ability to be strong and courageous and brave. That we become mindful of what the Lord has done for us. That if we view ourselves as complete, as he's promised to make us, then the wicked and horrendous and vile and unfair and unjust wrong that we've experienced or will experience, the one that needs correction and repair, that, that, actually, that correction and repair that we might get, if we ever get it, actually can't add to my life more than who God has made me to be or more than what he's done for me. I remember in October of 2016, my brother-in-law was in the hospital having just received a cancer diagnosis and having undergone an extensive exploratory surgery to both discover and repair um, what was going on in his body. 
Ten months later, he wouldn't be with us anymore. We didn't know that at the time. Uh, I remember driving to his house with my mom. We were there to, to pick up a bag for my sister to stay the night that night. It was the first house. It was the house that Com City had his first Bible study in on Lucille Drive in Masterson Station. Uh, we, were, we were there. We pulled the car over on the curb before we walked into the house. And as, as we did, my mom said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do if he dies? And I sat there for a minute. I was kind of jealous that she beat me to this question because I was wondering the same thing. And I wanted to be the one that asked it. And in what could have only been the Spirit of God. Like there's a moment where, where Jesus talks to the disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And they're like, ah, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're John the Baptist, right? And Peter, ironically, Peter wrote this, says, says you are the Lord, Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're not smart enough for that answer. Only my father could have told you to say that. Like, only the Spirit of God could have given you that answer. You're, you're too dumb to have arrived at that conclusion. I feel that way all the time. So in only what could have been the Spirit of God, I looked at my mom, who just asked this question, and I said, if Tom dies, we're going to worship Jesus. Not because he dies, because that's not what any of us want. But if the story ends up that way, we're going to worship. And if he lives, if the Lord gives him a longer and more full life, then we're going to worship Jesus. And we aren't going to adore Jesus more if Tom lives and is spared for this moment than if he succumbs to the horror of cancer. We just aren't. And, and I wish I said that with like rock-solid confidence that I believed it. I mean, I believe that was true, but that's hard. And I said it to, her, to my mom, I said, it's going to take everything we have to keep each other in that lane, everything. It's going to take all of our prayers. It's going to take all of our devotion. It's going to take honest and raw conversations. It's going to take all of our trust and belief. It's going to take all that the Spirit will lead us to. Because I'm going to want to worship a Jesus more that makes the hard things go away. That's my confession. I want to worship a Jesus more that makes the hard things that I've experienced go away. And listen, there will be a day when he wipes every tear from every eye. And I don't think that means he comforts. I mean, he says, stop crying. There's nothing to cry about anymore. Now, if you've ever like scolded a kid in crying, and maybe you've even had like a, a husband and wife conversation, it's like, they should be allowed to cry. No, they shouldn't. This is not worth crying about. You know, like one of those moments. And it's like, honor their emotions. Like, no, you know, like... When there is a moment where the God of all creation says, stop crying. There's nothing to cry about anymore. I've made it all perfect. I've made every wrong right. I've undone everything. I've made every sad thing become untrue. There is a moment that that happens, but it's not here. It's not here. And, and, and what I was saying is like that, that I want to, to love a God and worship a God more that makes all the hard things that I experience go away. But the truth is, I get to worship a Jesus, and you get to worship a Jesus that makes the hardest thing go away. And the hardest thing to get rid of is the sin that kept me from him. That's what we get. And when I'm mindful of that, when I'm mindful of that, and I realize that where he's redeemed me has taken me out of reach of even a life changed by the apologies or repair or do-overs or improvements that I would desire and quite frankly deserve, or that you would desire and quite frankly deserve, when I'm mindful of that, man... Does the grace of God really get to be on display? So what about you? What dominates your mind in the story when it comes to the suffering you've faced? What's been done to you? What you've walked through? What you've experienced? Or is the thing that dominates your story what's been done for you by the grace of Jesus? We look at that last verse. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you. For you. I want you to highlight those two words, for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There's a direct correlation between our mindfulness of the gospel and the way we manage our lives. 
That if we steward and live out of our identity in Christ, not from a sense of being owed, but a sense of being dealt with bountifully, as the psalmist would say, that we live life differently. And I want you to get this today. I actually have it on the screen. Living mindful of God means that you live less in view of what's happened to you and more in view of what's happened for you in Christ. Living mindful of God means less means you live less in view of what's happened to you and more in view of what's happened, as, as 2.21 says, for you in Christ. And when you do, the wrong you endure doesn't automatically become less wrong or less broken or less difficult or less depraved. But the debt dissipates because of the richness of the blessing of God. So may we be mindful together. And for some of you today, that just means that as we worship here, as we close, that you're just going to celebrate Jesus. You're just going to celebrate the one who's picked you out of the miry clay and set your feet upon the rock, as the psalmist writes. And you know him. But for others of you today, and maybe the ones that have been battling that frustration that I've talked about, hinted to, I just want to offer you freedom today. That you can come to this table, as we all will, all of those of us who believe in Jesus, come to this table today, and maybe for the first time, even if you come here a bunch, maybe for the first time, drink deeply from the grace that actually leaves you full, not lacking anything. That the redemption offered to you can't be improved upon, even by the repair you deserve. I just want to speak this blessing over us from James chapter 1 as we come to the table. As we come to the table, take, eat, and remember Take Eden and are filled by the, by the bread that represents his body broken for us and the drink that represents his blood poured out for us. As we do that, I just want to speak this as a blessing over us as we are mindful of the Lord. Blessed is the one, James 1.12, who remains steadfast under trial or suffering. For when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him church in the midst of suffering or in the midst of celebration. May we be mindful of him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for just the beautiful truth of the gospel. It starts with us. You did a work of repair and restoring and redeeming and ransoming and rescuing us. And because you moved us such a great distance from dead and trespasses and sins far, far away from you to close enough to be called friends and brothers and co-heirs with Christ because you did such a work. You, you, we can't improve upon it. Nothing in this world can improve upon it. The best scenario can't improve upon what you've done. And so, Lord, I just pray that you just bless us with that mindfulness today, that you give us the courage and the strength to stand in the midst of trials and sufferings and hardships that we face and to look even in difficulty, even in uh, hurt, even in pain, even in doubt to look at you and are mindful of what you've done. And God, I pray that with our mindfulness comes just the inexpressible gift of your grace to strengthen us, uh, to surround us, to motivate us, to move us, but also to lead us to endure. May we be people that are mindful well together and that endure well together. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.